The scripture reading is taken from John 15, verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Since Christmas, we've been uh, looking at the question, who is Jesus? What did his life mean? What was his ministry about? But very specifically, who is he in relationship to us? Who do we think he is? As I pointed out several times now, everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Nobody is objective about him because the stakes are too high. If Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord of all, and every knee shall bow. And people don't like to bow their knees, and so they come up with stories about Jesus. Think of all the movies and books and plays and articles that have been written about him. None of them are objective. Because it's always a subjective question. Who is Jesus to you? What do you think he came to do in your life? Who do you say that he is? And so it's important at least once in your life to clear away the weeds, to clear away the opinion of others, and come to terms with that question. Who do you believe he is? And Jesus helped us, helps us with that. He told a series of stories about himself, a series of metaphors, little parables, comparisons, where he explained who he is by telling stories about himself, by comparing himself to other things, that he's the bread of life, that he's the light of the world, that he's the gate, the door that everyone must pass through, that he's the good shepherd, that he's the way, the truth, the light, as we looked last week. How should we think about these? They're like little seeds. All the parables, all the stories are like little seeds. It's a great image. In fact, it's an image that Jesus uses of stories. They're like little seeds that he plants. And when you hear, Jesus is the vine. Maybe you have a picture of a vine or a vineyard that you've seen. But the point of the stories is they are dense. They contain vast truths. And when they are planted in your life, they become a resource. So that in the future, as you face different and difficult circumstances, as you face new challenges, as you yourself grow, become more educated, as your spirituality increases, so does this image. It unpacks itself. It grows in your life. It allows you to understand Jesus in new and fresh ways. 
So really, when we are considering these stories, that's what we're doing. We're planting seeds in our imagination. Like squirrels putting nuts in the ground for winter. So that when winter comes, we have a resource. We have something in us that can grow. That can feed us when nobody and nothing else does. It's like laying up stores for dark times. So let's look at this one. Where Jesus compares himself to a vine. This is a potent one, by the way. They're all potent. I guess we'll spend the rest of eternity unpacking what they all mean. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Now when Jesus says this, he's speaking to his disciples. Many of these little stories he tells about himself are towards the end of his ministry, when he is approaching the cross, and he is reassuring the disciples, and he is giving them the resource to understand what's about to happen. He's given the resource that will carry them through his death and his resurrection, that will bear fruit in their future lives. And when he says, I'm the true vine, it's not as perhaps as noticeable to us, but this would have made the ears of the disciples perk up. Because this was an image very present in Israel. Because Israel understood itself as one of the vines that grows out of God's good purpose in the world. Isaiah 5. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delights in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. The idea of the vine, then, is a central idea about the nature of Israel, rooted in the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, deriving life from the relationship with God, being planted in a foreign land. In fact, uh, Psalm 80 is explicit about it. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man, you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. It's hard to read that psalm as a Christian and not see Jesus, the man of God, the man of God's right hand, the one who the vine is pointing to, the one who will come and restore Israel. So you have this image of life, spiritual life, flowing as life flows from the ground into a vine and bears fruit. And that was the job of Israel. Then we get a particularly brutal part of this little image. 
And uh, it's worth spending some time on because, um, well, I'll, I'll explain why. I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So we have the image here. We have the image of growing vines, and God as the gardener, who cuts off the branches that are not bearing fruit and prunes the other branches. Um, this is a brutal image. Uh, when uh, I was a very young boy, about six or seven years old, my family moved from the north of England to the south of England. And my mother had always wanted a rose garden because that's in England, that's the apex of gardening. If you have beautiful roses in your garden, you've made it. And she wanted a, a home surrounded by roses. The trouble is roses are like vines. They're these scraggly things, and they spread everywhere. They grow along the ground if you will let them. And the only way to grow good vines, uh, good roses, is to brutally, brutally prune them, cut them back from six or seven or eight feet long to little stubs like this so that the, the roses will grow tight, they'll grow small, and the plant will put all its energy into the roses rather than these big, long branches. And I remember many a spring cutting back the dead wood so that the rose would produce fresh uh, blooms. But one thing you don't do is just cut away every branch. Pruning is about shortening healthy branches. It's about making sure that the sap gets to where you want it to go, close to the stem but above the ground. Cutting off branches and throwing them away, that's an image that I don't think that this particular passage is about. Why? Because that's really not very Christian. If Christianity is true, if the Bible is true, we are all dead branches until the life of God flows into us. If Christianity is true, every single human being deserves to be cut off and thrown away. So when I read this, it makes me nervous. Is this really the same God that we see revealed in Jesus, coming to save those who are lost and dead, those who don't have any life in them? So I looked at this word, cuts off. It's a Greek word, ario, and it actually has four meanings. The first, the main meaning of the word, the way it's mostly used, is to lift up something or pick it up. It also is used to lift up your eyes, to look upwards, to lift up your heart, to elevate yourself. It also means to lift up in order to carry something away, to throw it away, to remove it. And that's the sense that they've translated it here. Cut off to remove it, to throw it away, to put it in the trash. But if you look at actually how vines are taken care of, how wine growers actually treat their vines, what they're primarily doing is not cutting off to throw away. Vines, like roses, if you let them, will just grow along the ground. 
And it's a problem because the fruit then will rot or get uh, fungus or will be eaten by insects or animals. They'll get covered by weeds. They won't grow well. So what a vitna actually does is lift up, not cut off, lift the vine from the ground. Oftentimes they put a trellis and they lift up the branches so that the leaves and the fruit will be in the air and the light. They can grow without worrying about rot or fungus along the ground. And I think that's the sense that you should think of when you read this. Not God as this brutal gardener coming along just chopping our eye every bad person, every bad thing. But a gardener who is taking care. A gardener who is lifting up, who is bringing things that are on the ground that are subject to rot and ruin and bring them into the light. And actually this notion, this, this sense of the word is continued when it says... He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Once again, I looked up the word. Where it says prunes there, it is the Greek word katharsio, from which we get catharsis. And it means to lift up. It means to bring through a process into a new life. It means ensuring that the vine will grow properly, that the branches will bud freely, that the fruit won't rot. So the sense I think you should have of this image, and remember, we're, we're unpacking the image because we're trying to create a resource for ourselves. We're trying to understand who Jesus is, but also the nature of the relationship he reveals with God. And the relationship is of a vine that wild would run along the ground and be subject to being shaded, to rotting, to dying, to not producing much fruit. But the gardener prunes and lifts up, cleans away what is dead, allows what is remaining to flourish, ensures that the vine is in the light, is in the clean air, you have here the, the sense of gardener in the original word, uh, sense of the word, husbandry, taking care of something, not cutting it around or brutalizing it, but growing and nurturing and taking care so that the plant flourishes. So what do we have here? Summary. Israel was God's vine the vine that he brings out of slavery in Egypt, and he plants in the promised land with the goal that it will bear fruit and witness God to the world. That was the purpose of Israel. But it didn't fulfill that purpose. Instead of being rooted in God and spiritual life, it was taken over by the forces of death, by illegalism, by a performance-based human religion, by a culture that turned inward and focused itself purely on its own cleanliness, all those rules, in its own community, shunning the outsider, 
a culture that instead of witnessing God to the world, turned away from the world and cut itself off from the world. And so, Jesus comes in, the new vine, the new root, so that God's people can fulfill their purpose. And when we trust in him, when we root ourselves in him, this new spiritual life can flow. That's the image here. That to be alive is to be rooted in Jesus, the source, the one from whom life comes. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Remember, he's talking to the disciples and all who's going to follow from him, from them. Remain in me. I prefer the original English word, abide in me. Live in me. That's what he's calling on the disciples to do. That's what he's calling on us to do. But what does that mean? How do you abide in Jesus the vine? How do you remain in him? There's a wonderful book by Ray Steadman where he says this. When our Lord says, abide in me, he is talking about the will, the mind, about choices, the decisions we make. We must decide to do things which expose ourselves to him and keep ourselves in contact with him. This is what it means to abide in him. We have been placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now we must choose to maintain that relationship by the decisions we make. Decisions to expose ourselves to his word in order to learn about him and to relate to him in prayer when we converse with him. Decisions to relate to other believers in body life Swing by the church. That is, bearing one another, wherein we learn about and see Christ in one another. All this is designed to relate to him. Abide in me. If we do that, we are fulfilling this active, necessary decision of the will to obey his word, to do what he says, and to stay in touch with him. You know, when we're facing with challenges, certainly when I am challenged in my own life, there are two possibilities. To look to my own resources, to my own habits, usually bad habits, to the wisdom of the world about how to deal with them, the human way of dealing with a problem. But Jesus is saying, don't do that. Abide in me. Instead of trying to do things by yourself, Bring Jesus into it. Explicitly, we are invited to ask Jesus in prayer, to invite the Holy Spirit in prayer to counsel us, to guide us, to show us the way. And when we start to face every issue in our life with prayer, we are abiding in him. And new things will emerge, new ways of doing, things that we can't imagine 
God doesn't just work in us, he works in the world. He works in other people. It's like you have a spring of living water in the very center of your heart. And you have a choice. Do you drink from that spring regularly? Or do you drink from other sources? Do you turn to other people? Other ideas? Other philosophies of life? Other ways of doing things? Or do you trust that spring of living water? And it's right there, bubbling up. It's the promise when God says that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. The Holy Spirit is the life, the spiritual life of God. And it's right there. And every time we pray, every time we turn to that rather than something else, that spiritual life floods through us, waters us, grows us. Have you noticed, by the way, how Christians are always telling each other to confess and repent? What are they saying when they ask you to repent, when they invite you or suggest you repent. They're saying, turn away from your old habits, your old life without God. Turn from that to God. Turn to this new life. Live in it rather than the old life. The Puritans used to talk about mortification of the body. And what they meant was, Put to death that old life by not giving it your attention, not living in it, not making that your identity, who you really are, but repenting of it. Letting it die is going to die anyway. And turning and living in this new life that's been planted inside. And by the way, when we do face physical death, what's going to die? The old man. And what is going to survive? The new one, this new creation, this new spiritual life that we get from Christ. And what you're going to look like for all eternity is the spiritual life in which you've lived in this life. That's what we are cultivating. That's what we are growing into. That's what we are becoming. And anything lived outside that new life is a waste of time. A waste of your life and your existence. Because true life is right there, bubbling up from the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Everything that is not based on Christ, that does not have its foundation in him, that is not the product of this new life, everything else will be thrown away. That's what death will look like. And that is why we try in this life to live more and more in a Christ-like way. A life defined by him. A life shaped by his agenda and his purpose. A life based on his foundation. So how do you do it? 
You know, Rod Sedman said it's a decision of the will. It's a decision to engage with the Christ that we have. But what does it look like in practice? Someone. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Spiritual life is, for most people, not a matter of extraordinary visions, extraordinary miracles. These do happen, but they're rare. Spiritual life is primarily just habits of life. Habits of dealing with things. What is your habit in the morning when you wake up? Many people just switch on the coffee machine, switch on the radio or the TV, and their mind is filled with a cacophony of all the busyness of the world. Is it any wonder that a life that starts that way every morning is going to be confused and confusing? How about a life that started in the morning with a quick thank you to your Creator for this beautiful day? Thank you for this day, Lord. And then you start your day. Simple habits, simple practices that remind you who you are, who remind you who God is. That's what is being talked about here in Abiding in Christ. Living in the light, living in the truth, habitually turning to God and being renewed. And what will be the result? Fruit that comes supernaturally from the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Think of your last 10 years of your life. Are you growing in any of these areas? If the Spirit is really feeding your life, then you should see evidence of it. And if you want to grow in any of those areas, how do you do it? You abide in Christ. Habits of holiness. And it will bear not just fruit in the sense of a good life, but supernatural fruit, things that you cannot imagine about your life, things that you cannot conceive of right now, because they're not based in your circumstances or the realities of your past. They are supernaturally beyond anything that you can and have done, because they're from God. J.I. Packer wrote this, The Spirit works through means, through the objective means of grace, namely, biblical truth, reading the Bible, prayer, fellowship, the church, worship, and the Lord's Supper. But also, through subjective means. So when he says objective means, it means it doesn't matter how good or bad you feel. It doesn't matter whether you had a good day or a bad day whether you feel good about yourself or bad about yourself. 
If you go to the Lord's Supper, if you read the Bible, if you pray, if you worship, no matter what your circumstances and how you feel, you are going to experience God's grace. Your life is going to become more buoyant, more light-filled. But there are also subjective means of grace. And so he continues. The objective means of grace, biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, and worship, the Lord's Supper. But also through the subjective means of grace, whereby we open ourselves up to change. Namely, thinking, listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what is in one's heart with others, and weighing any response they make. The Spirit shows His power in us, not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, or prophecies. Such communications only come rarely, and to some believers not at all. But rather, the Spirit uses these regular means to effectively change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. And here's the key. Habit-forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all of them habitual. Habitual ways of thinking, habitual ways of feeling, habitual ways of behaving. What does it mean? to abide in Christ and to be filled with that life, developing habits of holiness, using the means of grace, turning to them habitually. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that we do the Lord's Supper every week. So that no matter what goes on in your life, and no matter how awful my sermon, we will encounter Christ every Sunday in the elements. That's why we do it. So that it becomes a regular encounter with new life. A guaranteed encounter with new life. Because the Lord's Supper doesn't depend on me, doesn't depend on the elements, doesn't depend on anything that we do. It's a table set by Christ. And we are obedient to his command to participate in the Lord's Supper. And he will feed us. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. You are sowing yourself to be my disciples. Now this causes people a lot of grief, this, this passage, these verses. Why don't I have that red Lamborghini that I was praying for on my 50th birthday? If this is true, what happened to it? Well, remember the purpose for which God planted Israel in the Promised Land. To witness himself to the world. And why did Jesus come? To witness God's goodness to the world. And apparently, a 50-year-old pastor driving a red Lamborghini is not a good witness. (laughs) And therefore, it never showed up. And so this is a reminder for our prayers. 
This is not, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is not talking to Father Christmas and coming up with a list. This is kingdom prayer. This is praying for the spiritual life that we have, the access that we have to God through Christ, to advance his kingdom, to witness his goodness to the world. You know, I remember when we were praying for this space here with the Wallet School, where it's in Matthews, and we could not find a morning worship space. It's very hard in Hoboken. And we prayed, and I prayed, and we had groups that prayed, and um, we met regularly with the principal. Uh, for him, by the way, there was no advantage in us being here. We were just potentially a problem. And I remember being amazed when he said yes. He had no reason to. But then afterwards, I was thinking, Tony, you really don't believe. After all, what were we praying for? We were praying for space for our church to grow. Is there anything more kingdom-centric than that? It wasn't about us. It was about God's church. Why and how could God possibly not answer such a prayer? And of course he did. Because it was not about red Lamborghinis. It was about the advance of God's kingdom and the growth. And here we are. And it seems like every week we have to put more chairs at the back. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, this is to my Father's glory. Any prayer that we pray in Jesus' name that is going to advance his kingdom, that is going to reveal him more perfectly to the world, that is going to accomplish his will, which we learn from reading his plan, all such prayers will be answered. That's the promise here. Because we have access to this spiritual life. A life that doesn't come from the world, that comes from outside the world, that will feed us and grow us and give us life forever. Is there anything else we can say about the vine, about bearing fruit? I think there is. What is the fruit of the vine, literally? It's wine made from grapes. That's what primarily vines have been used for back in the time of Jesus and ever since. Why would Jesus choose the vine? Why would God choose the vine as his image for spiritual life? As his image for what it means to abide in him? Well, the first miracle, if you read the Bible, the first miracle that Jesus ever performed was a wedding at Cana. It was a celebration. They drank all the wine. There was nothing left. The party was still going on. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, we've run out of wine. And so what does he do? He turns water into wine. Because he wants the celebration to continue, the wedding celebration. Why would Jesus want people at a wedding to drink more and more wine? Because he wanted them to celebrate. At the Last Supper, when Jesus was with his disciples, he said this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. 
Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Why will Jesus not drink from the cup, will not drink wine until the day of the Lord happens? Because it's not good to drink alone. He was returning to the Father to prepare a place for us. But as we saw last week, he also promises that he is going to show the way to the Father and to that place that he has prepared. And what's going to happen when we meet, when we return to him? There is going to be the party to end all parties. The great feast of the Lamb when God and man are restored in their relationship forever. It's going to be the way things are meant to be. And Jesus is not going to drink again. He is not going to celebrate again until he can do it with us. That's what he's saying. Until the spiritual life that he came to bring is complete in us and we can drink wine together. The Bible ends this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them to be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning and crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's a wedding feast. It is the bride, beautiful, washed clean by Christ's blood, prepared through all eternity to meet with the bridegroom and be united forever. And then the celebration. Now what's that going to look like? I'm sure you all have images. And by the way, I think the image will grow throughout our life as we think about it. But we do know a couple of things. It is just, not just, it will be completely unalloyed with pain and suffering and misery. Perfect and pure joy. Perfect and pure celebration. And there will be wine. Jesus promised he's going to drink with us. And maybe, maybe, he'll make it out of water. And we'll see him do it right in front of us. If we abide in him, if we trust him, if we follow him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for who you are. The vine that gives us life.
the vine that gives us perfect and pure life if we trust. Lord, show us how to abide in you. Show us how to build lives rooted in you. Show us, Lord, how to bear your fruit so all the world can see. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.